0: Prepare our hearts, O God, to accept you and your word. Silence in us any voices but your own, so that we may hear your word and also do it. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. We will, we will uh, begin with reading of Scripture. <clears throat> if you have your own Bible or device with the Scriptures on it, that's going to be helpful, but not necessary. I will read the Word. You know, the thing is, is I, I am, as most of you know, a lover of the Bible. I, I think the Bible is is <clears throat> the greatest gift that God gave after Christ himself. You know, I mean, after Christ, what what could be more akin to Christ's presence than this? this word from god this love story written by the the spirit of god and the fact that it's been given to us and it has been uninhibited in all of human history after the real story began the life of the church the birth of of the uh people of god through christ you know and and I, I have, in Bible studies, told people that, you know, if there's, if there's one thing that my expensive seminary education taught me, it is that lousy versions of the Bible never last. If they aren't anointed by God, they won't get published, you know. And I can show you that sometime at length in, in, the, in a class, maybe, but, or a private conversation. But what's remarkable is, is that the one you hold in your hand is most likely there because God has blessed it. And it doesn't, it just, it it boggles my mind. And so what a gift we have in scripture. And yet it is a living word. So hearing it read to you from time to time isn't a bad thing either. You know, so I really want to encourage you to uh, not only read scripture, but maybe get one of those apps or a CD, or I don't know if you're ancient like me, you might remember what cassette tapes are. You could always try that, but listen to the word of God and just absorb it. Now we're reading Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42. The heading in my Bible says, The Fellowship of the Believers. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. I want to reread that line. And awe came upon every soul. day by day, those who were being saved. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Now, I'm gonna keep that handy because we'll come back to a couple of things here, but first thing I wanna ask you, and and I want you to really think about this honestly, when's the last time you were really awestruck? I mean, think about it. When, When was the last time you were really awestruck? You know, awe and wonder can be stirred in us by remarkably beautiful things and incredibly ugly things. It was just a couple of weeks ago that we were remembering the incident that happened, the incidents that happened on September 11th in 2001. And those of us who remember it will also recall being awestruck with horror. Awestruck by the immensity of the terrorist attacks and the, and, the, and the death and the destruction and, and, and just, it, I've got chills just telling that to you because it was that awesome in a horrible way. Or maybe like me, you've had the opportunity to be out in the middle of nowhere, somewhere deep in the, in the wilderness away from light pollution and, and you saw the wonder of the Milky Way up in the sky. You, you saw the universe and how magnificently huge and immeasurable it is. Uh, I remember I, I used to do a lot of backpacking when I was young, and a friend and I were hiking in the Cascade Mountains of Washington State many, many years ago, and and uh, he had a really subtle sense of humor, and we, we had been walking from a high pass through a deep, deep forest, and we finally came along a little meadow in the forest on the side of this mountain, and I walked out of the woods and there beside me on the left was this beautiful purple mountain with white caps on it and up to the right was this beautiful purple mountain with rocks and snow and 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 in front of me across the meadow was this golden grass and and there were birds singing and and there were mule deer loping along and 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 in front of me were these beautiful trees that were 20 feet in diameter and hundreds of feet high and, and, and I just stood there and I was in awe and my friend comes walking up behind me and I hear him stop and then he goes, it's not that pretty. It was funny, it was funny and that's all he was trying to say is, is, is that's what awe does to you, right? Have you ever been that awestruck? And if you think about it then, can I ask you a really hard question? When's the last time church worship, Sunday school class, a small group meeting of believers, a prayer by the bedside of a loved one left you awestruck? When's the last time your life as a Christian and your shared life as a church-attending Christian left you awestruck? Have you ever, ever been overcome with awe? in church that's a hard question isn't it because i imagine some of us are thinking you know i i don't remember now i'm not gonna sugarcoat this and say that that there's a a a, a solution to the problem or that you you know you, oh it'll be so hard on yourself you know what you need to be a little hard on yourself right now if you're thinking gee when was the last time it's not really about being hard on yourself but our collective self It's a way that I've been trying to communicate throughout the last several months that we are coming out of the wilderness into the promise, and we have to recognize that when God delivers people from the world, the only way the world is going to accept their God is when God is so awesome that they can't resist overwhelming uh, uh, awe, you know, <clears throat> and, and so I, like, I don't know about you, and I'm, I'm digressing from the notes slightly, but I was just thinking along these lines as I'm speaking, and I thought, you know, what, what really is remarkable is that Pharaoh stayed mad. He saw ten plagues that were awesome. <laughs> he saw the death of the firstborn. And he still got angry with the God who could make that happen and chased down those people and had his entire army destroyed. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is is that when we think about awe in worship, we need to understand that some people are just not going to see it. That some people just aren't going to recognize when God is at work. And so what do we do? as we the worshipers who are irresistibly drawn to this place week after week to worship God because we just can't help it. And and what are we gonna do about the problem of not being awe-inspired in worship? I know that in my history as a pastor of churches in the last 25 years, I've had an awful lot of people blame it on me, you know pastor i'm sorry but worship just isn't very inspiring and i'm thinking i read the scripture to you i interpret it with the help of the holy spirit and to the best of my gifting and and i i hope as you hear the words that something stirs in you as it does in me as i share it with you and yet i don't know what we're looking for so the answer to the question when's the last time you were awe inspired in worship is up to you. And then you have to ask yourself, in what way do I need to be inspired so that awe is triggered? And I will describe for you what we just read in the Acts of the Apostles, and we'll see if that doesn't help us narrow this down a bit. So today's passage, which, by the way, is is part of a larger narrative. Um, as I mentioned last week, Acts of the Apostles is sort of the volume two of the Gospel of Luke. He he says in his first work everything that Jesus did, and then in his second work, Acts, he tells us everything the believers did in response. And so we're we're looking at volume two, and it's about us in a certain way that we can't help deny recognizing, rather, that we cannot deny. And the first thing you notice is that there is a pattern to what Luke is describing, and there is also a unique message in this particular passage we just read. The pattern comes to us from the beginning of Luke's story of the Acts of the Apostles. So if you go back to Acts 1, he says in the very beginning of the book of Acts that uh, right before the ascension of Jesus, the Lord said to them, Um, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Now, I've often used this in the past as a description of of the, the pattern for missionary outreach. And it is legitimately that. But what I want to recognize today is that the pattern of the book of Acts follows. So Luke, you know, by the way, is probably the best educated and the most skillful writer of all of the apostles. Uh, He's considered a doctor because the Apostle Paul refers to him as Dr. Luke. But the other thing that you can say is one of the things you look forward to every Christmas is listening to Linus quote, the Gospel of Luke, as he beautifully tells the story of the birth of Jesus, right? So Luke's just a good writer, and you know he's a good writer because it's been translated from Greek, and it still sounds good in English, and, and you know, the Greek, if we understood it, is even more beautiful because they have more words for stuff. But I digress, so he's, he's created a literary pattern that he wants us to recognize, And so he begins to tell the story of the birth of the church in Jerusalem, because that's where Jesus said they should start. So he's telling us at the beginning of the book, Jesus told us to tell the story of Jesus in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the rest of the world. And if you read the Acts of the Apostles, it's a description of the church in Jerusalem, the church in Judea, the church in Samaria, and the church as it expands to the rest of the world. Jerusalem, that's your hometown. That's where it started. The worldwide headquarters of Judaism is right there in Jerusalem, and Jesus established the church right there in Jerusalem, and so it is in Jerusalem a Jewish movement. It starts in Jerusalem as a Jewish movement, a bunch of Jewish people who have become Christ followers and have seen the fulfillment of all their... Judaism, all of the things that that were taught to them about what they should expect and how God would fulfill all of God's promises, they see it all in Jesus, they recognize that. So what do they do? They go back to the temple and they worship Jesus there. They worship the God who gave them redemption through Christ the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach, right? That's what they would have called him. And they say, it's logical for us to be right here. In fact, many of them, the apostles especially, remember when he presented himself as the final sacrifice at the temple. When he rode in on the donkey, he followed a particular pattern to the temple that said, As plain as day, I have come to make myself the final sacrifice and to establish my kingdom on earth right here. So where does Christianity begin? In Jerusalem. So there's the greater pattern that we need to recognize. And now the the micro pattern that we want to look at or the story for today is what was going on and the fellowship of believers in Jerusalem. Well, here's what I'd like you to think about for a minute. Now, I don't know about you, but I've had countless experiences like the one I'm about to describe. There's a religious event of a certain kind. It might be the United Methodist Annual Conference Gathering. It might be Promise Keepers. Uh, It might be a a women's conference or whatever. And it's going to be in Indianapolis. And it's going to be, well, gosh, I've been to the old Hoosier Dome, a.k.a. RCA Dome. I've been to, uh, I've been to, to, uh, Uh, Market Square Arena, I think, you know, all those are gone, but lately I've been to the Convention Center in Indianapolis for Methodist stuff, and here's what it always looks like. It's the center, you know, it's the capital city, people are drawn from miles and miles around, and they fill up the hotels, they fill up the restaurants, the food trucks roll out, vendors start setting up booths and tables, in the outer courts around the central place of activity and the people start flowing in. Now the hotel prices they say are discounted but they still cost a heck of a lot more in the capital city than they do here. And the restaurants say that they're discounting but it still costs a heck of a lot more in the capital city than it does here. And the vendors are hawking everything from the primary speaker's latest book to christian gimmicks right you know like like the the jesus six pack of commemorative coke cans or something i mean it's insane right and and then the people who go to this thing, they look forward to it. Oh, I went to the last one. I've never missed one of these. I always go, it's something I look forward to every year. I love staying in this hotel. I Don't much care for that hotel. Oh, I always eat at that restaurant when I'm here. I really indulge myself. And I go to that expensive restaurant once a year when we come for the, the annual gathering and, and then they uh they go in and they go oh i love it when you go to see the vendors cuz you you really get deep discounts when you go to see the vendors and and then if they actually act, you know get inside where the actual worship thing is happening the stuff is pretty generic and and it is given with good intentions but it's designed to reach a large and diverse group of people so The only way you can make something palatable for everybody, Phil, you probably understand this, is to neutralize it as much as possible and then put condiments on the table so they can pepper and salt as they like. Uh, uh, Courtney told me something really magnificent about three years ago that I've never really taken seriously, but she said, you know, (laughs) not because you said it, I just never gave it any thought. She said, you know, a really great worship leader, as we all know she is, will take the songs that we sing and put them in a key that most people can sing. And the reason I never took it that seriously is because the key she's talking about is where I live (laughs) and do all my singing. So you might say, well, you know, you don't have a bad voice. That's true as long as someone like Courtney is playing the music because she keeps it in my range. So what is this mass worship that we're experiencing at the Capital City Convention Center? It's something that has been deliberately designed to fit everybody's needs. I don't know if you've ever been to a Promise Keepers, but you know, the last one I went to, which was like 25 years ago, okay, almost 30 years ago, (laughs) there's like 70,000 people there. You know, how do you make something that feels like worship for 70,000 people from all over the Midwest? when we know full well that the reason that we're all segregated this morning at this hour is because there's so many different ways to worship and so many things that people think are the only right way. Well, you water it down so that it can't offend anybody. Oh, and then when you come for this annual gathering, you always look forward to the posturing, right? You know, promise keepers. Somebody shows up in a, in a beautiful luxury bus, right? You know, and then some of them show up with way too many people crammed into a little sedan. And all the way there, they were speaking a language that isn't typically spoken in this country, you know? And, and, and so there's the posturing. And believe me, when I tell you, when I go to, you know, denominational events of this nature, there's all kinds of posturing. Oh my Lord. All kinds of seeing and being seen and and there are all kinds of irrelevant conversations going on while the plenary sessions are happening and there's important decisions so-called to be made, right? Now you might wonder where I'm going with this. And maybe you've already gotten there. This is what temple worship was like in the days of the Acts of the Apostles. There were annual events like Pentecost, like the Feast of the Passover, like the, the Feast of Booths, you know, these, there were various feasts and, and festivals that brought huge crowds to the capital city, and so guess what, hotel business went through the roof, restaurant business went through the roof, vendors set up all around, and, and they, they sold everything from, you know, the, the temple rabbi's latest book you know, to the commemorative uh, Moses and the, the uh, uh, prophets, you know, books or something, right? No wonder Jesus went in there and tore the place up. Said, you have ruined this. You have made this all about everything but what it's about, right? And, and so come back to the place of this fellowship of believers and imagine that this culture hasn't changed just because Jesus ripped the place up one day. In fact, they killed him. And here is this group of people gathered in the name of a dead prophet who was executed because he didn't know when to keep his mouth shut. And what are they doing that is so awe-inspiring? What is happening that makes people who believed that this was the natural culture and the natural expression of worship, these annual gatherings with all their trappings, how did these people become believers every day? What happened that was so awe-inspiring? And what's really amazing is, is it wasn't like... huge terrorist acts it wasn't like god parting the sea and million people walking through on dry land it wasn't anything like that what inspired awe was that these people came for the annual festival and then they stayed long after it was over and they shared everything they had so that it wasn't necessary to go to the expensive restaurant or the hotel They didn't go and buy all the garbage from the vendors. They just enjoyed each other's company and the presence of the Spirit of God among them. And they said things that didn't really fit the status quo, but they were so overwhelmingly real and authentic and true that they could not but be taken seriously. And then there was this love among them there was this unbelievable love they just loved each other as Christ loved them now I don't know how that played out because it doesn't tell us in vivid detail but understand that what people witnessed in Jerusalem was a stark contrast From the picture that I just painted of a typical downtown Indianapolis event in the name of Jesus or in the name of whatever religion, right? It's a total contrast. What is the awesome, unbelievable, overwhelmingly inspiring thing that happened outside the gates of the temple and on the steps of the temple and in the walkways around the temple? What was happening there after the festival was over and all the people had gone home but this group stayed was this community that wasn't driven by anything commercial, this community that wasn't driven by anything that was uh religious this community that wasn't driven by uh uh, posturing and pride and and you know first thing that happens when you get rid of everything you have and then let it be used by a common i know it's communism what we're describing here because a lot of people have said you know if you really read the bible carefully especially jesus's agenda it sounds like he's promoting socialism or communism that's what i want to argue against next But understand for just a minute that once things and money no longer become important, then people can really love unconditionally. That's what happened outside the temple. And it wasn't happening inside the temple because inside the temple there was a whole religious hierarchy full of posturing and the quality of the clothes you wore and the kind of You know, uh, like when I go to religious functions, you know, people will debate about who went to the better seminary. You know, oh, you went to that school. You know what I mean? Like, well, you know what, it's the only one I could afford. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's too bad, you know. If you were good enough, you could have gone to the one that costs more. You know, I mean, this this whole logic that doesn't make any sense to real spirit-led Christianity is present in religion. And so it's the same way at the temple, all the religious people, they've been, birthed, they've, they've been birthed into it. They've been, you know, they're the sons and daughters, mostly sons, obviously, of, of religious leaders of the past. And, you know, and there's this whole culture and, and, and there's this whole hierarchy and, and all this religion. And these people outside are just equal in that they were all sinners who were saved by God's grace through Jesus Christ, and no sin on no individual was greater or less than on another. It was all the same. They were all the same in that while they were yet sinners, Christ died for them so that they could be back in the family of God, which was what they were trying to recreate constantly inside the temple, and it turned it into anything but a place where God would want to be. What God wanted for the people. So, I said I'd argue against socialism and communism. Well, not exactly. What I want you to hear is, is, as I wind this up, that this is the picture of the birth of the Church in Jerusalem. I've heard a lot of Christians say, well, maybe that's how we should be doing Church. I've heard people say, we should do Acts of the Apostles kind of Church, you know, instead of having buildings and grounds and having all this stuff. Well, I don't know, we're stuck with it, so we better make the most of it. That's kind of what I say. But, but there are people who will argue that this is what the model of the Church is, and I disagree. I think this is the model of the birth of the Church in Jerusalem. And this is exactly how it had to go down in order to take the Jewish establishment in its center to task and introduce Christ's true version of what God gave the people we call the Jews. And it's from that moment forward when the church is born in Jerusalem that Judaism becomes an antiquated attempt at oneness with God that is superseded by Jesus who makes it so simple that all you have to do is confess that you're a sinner, accept that Christ alone is your salvation and that this puts you on equal terms with him in the eyes of God the Father. Now that very statement ought to inspire some awe in in some of us, right? Maybe if you've heard it before, it's not as awe-inspiring, but but every time I hear myself say it, I'm awe-inspired, I'm awestruck. Are you kidding me? You mean to say that I can have eternal life, but more than that, I can be equal in the eyes of the Creator to His Son, His beloved Son? I can be that? And all I have to do is admit that I'm filthy in and of myself I, in the face of God's holiness. That all I have to do is admit that I'm a sinner. That means that I resist God without even thinking about it most of the time. And, and if I admit that, and I admit that the only way that God can forgive me for that is if I accept that Christ purchased my forgiveness and Christ, therefore, is my Savior. You mean that's all it takes for me to know that I am in the eyes of my Creator his beloved son, period. That might inspire some awe. And if a bunch of people were in agreement about that and they were gathered as one, as a fellowship of believers, it might be downright awe-inspiring to anybody who was present or witnessing it. And that might be what really is being described here. In the Church of Jerusalem. And as we move forward, we will hear how the the church spread. And as it spread, the tactics changed, but the outcome remains the same, awe-inspiring fellowship of believers, because the truth of what it means to be a believer doesn't change from time to time or place to place. It doesn't even change in Samaria, which is a place Jews did not want to go. It doesn't change in a modern interpretation of church like ours. It doesn't change in a small house church gathering. It it doesn't change if you're meeting in a movie theater or a strip mall. It doesn't change if you're meeting on somebody's back porch. It just doesn't change. It's always the same truth. Christ died because it was the only way for me to be at one with him and the Father so that I would be the child of God that God always intended for me to be. A child of God like his own beloved son. I hope that inspires some awe today. And I hope that as the fellowship of believers, we continue to be a source of awe. Our vision statement says we want to be vital to the well-being of the community through Christian discipleship. And you know, what we're hoping is, is that by meeting certain needs and being helpful, kind of like we have been with the courts, for example, that people might have an opportunity to be inspired with awe by this fellowship of believers. So we got a tall order to fill. Some kook at the head of this whole thing in the pulpit said we could do it. Rest assured, we can do it if the we includes the very spirit of a God who loves us so much that he saved us with his only son and then birthed that spirit in our hearts. Let us pray. Thank you, God, for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts that it might change us forever, that we might be awe-inspired by your presence. And help us, Lord, to move forward, to live in a way that generates awe because you are so evident in our lives. We pray in Christ's name, amen.